Dotnet Rocks episode 765 with guest Brian Noyes. Recorded live Tuesday, April 24th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's uh, Carl and Richard here. I'm speaking to you from Gesture Pack Central. <laughs> <laughs> and congratulations again, my friend. I'm so glad you got that out the door. People are really excited about it. Yeah, I've then, seen some. In, I've got uh, you know Google tracking going, and people are uh, talking about it. They are talking about it, and uh, got some happy customers, and it's just all going really, really well. Nice. Also, uh, episode two of Acoustic Addicts went out today, as of this recording, which awesome. is the, the 24th of April. You really and, worked hard on that next show, didn't you? Well, yeah. The problem was I used the. Here's a tip folks if you're going to shoot video don't just say yeah i can do lighting and throw up a new light without testing it because what happens is we had this light it was like a hundred watt incandescent bulb on the floor Hmm. pointing up at us and it would reflect off the guitars in such a way that it would change the color of the camera wow it changed the color tone it totally screwed up the tone so So depending on what a guitar you had you had different colors yeah and just the way we, we would move and stuff and from scene to scene it would actually change so i imagine I, your skin tone kept changing well the whole tone of the of the of the shot so i spent more time correcting the color of the shot uh, the shots than i did actually editing wow. so next time i'm calling in an expert you know, there's yeah, a reason like you why. You need someone on the camera the whole time to catch that early. Well, you need someone who knows lighting. I mean, you, yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't know how much goes into the science of lighting a set. It's yeah. like you can't just try it. You Especially know, you with a shiny guitar. Yeah. And let's face it, all those guitars on that show, shiny. Yeah. So anyway. You spend enough. three grand on a guitar, you get a little polish. So enough about that. Anyway, <laughs> it's fun. Acousticaddicts.com. Uh, let's start with Better Know Framework. Oh, yeah. All right, my friend, what do you got? Well, seeing as how Mr. Noise is talking about um, single-page applications, I thought I would bring people right away to the ASP.NET single-page application page. Okay. Which is a new feature in MVC4 beta preview, and it is at tinyurl.com slash single-page application. And so uh, it basically talks about what it includes and, and gives you um, guidance as to, to get going, has all the downloads and resources and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But it has the uh, single-page application documentation guide, which is pretty cool. It just came out in February. But Brian's going to talk all about that, so I won't talk about it. But I just wanted to get you there, get you started, and there you go. Nice. Yeah. All available so, via NuGet. So who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 743. And that's the one we did with Derek Bailey talking about different JavaScript frameworks like Backbone and jQuery and so forth. And this comment is from David Carson, who says, if only people would stop disabling JavaScript in their browsers. Jeez, what's wrong with them? I recently worked for two clients, one that didn't seem to care their users had a poor experience if JavaScript was not available, while the other one went to great lengths to ensure that the user experience was still at an acceptable level, even if it wasn't. 
While the first approach is short-sighted at best, the problem with the latter is that you end up with twice the work and potentially the same logic in two places, the client and the server. This is fine until you think about maintenance. What if one validation routine is updated and the other is not? Ask me how I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, David, yeah, you know, you know what this is? This is an IT guy figured out that JavaScript was a problem in like 1998 and yeah. just hasn't let it go. Yep. And uh, yeah, I think you've got to fight back at a pretty fundamental level there because just think about it, JavaScript is not optional anymore. Like it, we're sort of past all of this. Yeah. But I feel your pain. And in sharing your pain, I'm going to send you a .NET Rocks mug so you can at least drink coffee in a cool big mug, just like the one I've got in front of me today. Same here. And uh, say good things about .NET Rocks. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the show of your choice at .NET Rocks.com. And now... On the tablet show as well at yeah. thetabletshow.com. There's comments right there. My friend Carl Franklin made it happen. That's right. Hey, uh, guess what this is? What is it? Uh, line one, roast beans. Line two, grind beans. Line three, measure beans. Line four, add water. Line five, press brew. Instructions for making coffee? That's a coffee script. Oh, 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 we just did that show with Rob Goddard about bah. coffee script too. You're not, a, you're not a nice man. I'm sorry. And before we introduce Brian, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts such as our guests. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their vast library. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on web development with over 20 courses on ASP.NET development and 10 courses on jQuery, JavaScript, and HTML5 programming. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start just $29 a month. And that brings us to our guest, Brian Noyes. Brian Noyes is a pretty nice guy from iDesign who knows a few things and is tired of really long bios and podcast intros and guests who then apologize for them as if it's not their fault. <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. Being awesome. A, <laughs> being the... a loyal listener myself, I get so tired of that. Oh, gee, such a bad bio. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, welcome back. You've been on the show many, many times. Indeed. Glad to be back. You're into architecture, WCF, WPF, ASP.NET, pretty much if it's on the Microsoft stack, you're into it. Just about. There's a few silos out there that I just push aside and say I can't do everything. But So um, we're talking about single-page applications here today. Are we talking about the, the capital SPA, or are we talking about the MVC implementation, or all of the above? A uh, little of all of the above. I mean, uh, we can talk a little bit about the concepts of what SPA really means and how it's different for web apps. Um, but definitely wanted to talk some about, you know, Microsoft-specific offering in that now. Okay, well, what is SPA? Well, SPA, as you said, s stands for single-page application. Um, it's kind of a whole different way of thinking about building a web app. Instead of our traditional isolated pages with navigation links between them and the browser refreshing every time you click on one, it is more like the Gmail experience for people who have been there, and there's a few others out there where you know, you hit one page and you never really leave it, but the contents of that page can completely dynamically change as you navigate around within that window, if you will. Yeah. 
And it's, you know, I'm kind of moving back into a web world. Once upon a time, when I first became an MVP about eight years ago, it was an ASP.NET, and I was totally web-focused. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I kind of became a smart client guy in the 2005 timeframe as, as .NET 2.0 was coming out and didn't do much web stuff for a number of years and sort of re-educating myself in this new world these days. And uh, it's interesting to me to to focus on SPAs because it's very familiar to me, um, having right. spent a ton of time on Silverlight and WPF and stuff like that. It yeah. feels very much like designing a window because you always have your top-level window and you just change out the contents within it. Right. And that's pretty much what an SPA is, just HTML-based. Well, it's interesting you say that. I think it was back in 2003 when uh, I built the admin app, the web app for .NET Rocks, and all of our podcasts use the same admin window, and it's basically a single-page application. But that came out of the uh, my my experience with web forms. I mean, I'm a, I was a, a you know Windows developer before that, so I was very familiar with that Windows Forms kind of uh, architecture, and it just seemed like a it was easier to do it that way for me. I don't know. Yeah, to to a certain degree, it depends on how much the contents are changing. You know, if you think about the general structure of a, a Windows application with your menu bar and your toolbar and, you know, sometimes some navigation on the left that never goes away. Yeah. And then just changing out a main content area. In HTML, there were ways to go about that, but it's definitely gotten easier in the HTML5 arena and, and with, you know, sort of tricks and various libraries out there that have made our lives easier in HTML. Well, it sort of seems like, um, you, you know, the things that we have done in ASP.NET have been sort of hacky, you know, HTML-ish ways to present an application like master pages. Master pages are sort of a way to give the user the experience that they're on one page and the contents are changing, even though we're using multiple content pages. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I I think one important thing about SPAs that, you know, people coming from a a traditional ASP.NET background, I would say a web forms kind of background, have to get used to is you get very much away from server pages. You know, you, you really have to embrace the idea that Pages are HTML and JavaScript, and I'm going to write that stuff, or at least you know leverage some libraries to make my life easier. But it's not about you know server page lifecycle rendering out some HTML that's kind of opaque to me, based on server controls. It's more taking full control of what happens on the client side and living on the client side. Yeah, it reminds me of stuff like heck, the origin of AJAX, right? Outlook Web Access. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean. OA could easily be pointed to as, you know, sort of a, a prototypical SPA itself because you yeah. had that, you know, a single landing page and stuff happened inside of it. Um, I never really looked into the code of OA myself to see what kinds of nasty tricks they were probably playing in those days, especially the early versions. Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, it really is terrifying code. But when you think, you know, don't even look at the code, just look at the model. You've got a sort of home page which is the very outlook like with your toolbar just down the left just like you described and 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 buttons across the top and the center pane gets updated on a regular basis but when you actually open a mail or create a mail it pops a new window which is really just a different browser window and when you're finished with it it disappears and the results of that appear in the main frame again it's really it's the funny thing is it's such a natural metaphor for something that isn't web, that when you do it in the web, if you just forget for a moment, 
You know, you, you don't even notice. It's when you realize, holy cow, that was a web browser. How did they do that, that you, you get your chill? Right. But uh, I mean, back then, a lot of that stuff was being done through some, you know, Ajax calls, obviously, and some really nasty low-level DOM manipulation. Yeah. Whereas things have gotten, you know, so much better these days with libraries like jQuery and jQuery templates in particular mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the dynamic rendering parts uh, that you just don't have to touch the DOM so much. You just kind of use the jQuery API itself to make that kind of thing happen. Well, let's, yeah. let's face it, fiddling with the public members of the DOM is just something you should not do in public. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> fiddling with members in general, I think yeah, you can generalize. Yeah, especially private members. Yeah, don't play with the private members. Sorry, totally derailed things. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> that was my fault. I mean, I, I, we're getting back to this issue that, I mean, this is not a thing that Microsoft invented, right? The SPAs have been around for a while. They just seem to have coalesced lately because the libraries have gotten so good. Well, and what's actually kind of interesting, when you look at the current SPA offering, and, and Carl gave the uh, the tiny URL there to get you there, the actual implementation so far, at least what's available in the beta, has very little to do with SPAs. <laughs> it's more supporting infrastructure that you would need in an SPA, the uh, the Upshot library in particular, that's, that's the part of MVC4 focused on SPA. Right. It's more about getting data into the client-side JavaScript, not about how you structure your pages or navigate between them and so on. Right. And they're, they're saying that they will evolve into that and there will, there will be more features coming that are focused on that side of it. But really, once you get up into the UI layer, there's already other libraries taking care of a lot of that stuff between jQuery and Knockout and things like Nav.js or History.js to mm -hmm. handle the navigation. You know, the actual page structuring and rendering and how you put it all together and change things is, is mostly covered by other libraries other than this Upshot one that is, uh, you know, shipping as part of MVC4. And what's Upshot? Upshot's the name of the, so it's a JavaScript library that they have. Um, if you create an MVC4 application, there are various sort of sub-templates there when you fire up the project wizard, and one of those is labeled a, a single-page application. And if you select that one, they're going to generate, um, in the scripts library, they're going to add the Upshot library. They also add Knockout, which is a MVVM library, which you guys have had, uh, you know, Steve Sanderson was on a while back talking about that great show there, and, and that's one people should look back to to get up to speed on what Knockout's all about. But Knockout itself has also become part of the the uh, default set of libraries there for an MVC application because it's a great way to structure things in the client uh, JavaScript. But Upshot is more focused on, it's almost if you think about a traditional layered application of, of UI and business logic and data access, mm -hmm. You almost have corresponding layers on the client side now, if you do it right, in JavaScript, where you've got the UI is really just the HTML and CSS. The not so much business logic, but interaction logic is the view model-y type stuff that you would hook up with Knockout. Mm -hmm. And then sort of sitting underneath that, Upshot, Upshot, at least in its current form, is more of your client-side data access layer. And it does data access via service calls, not direct database access, but it's very analogous in terms of its its function and its place in the architecture. You know, if you if you took away any comment about the web or JavaScript, the conversation we're having sounds like sort of a traditional client-side application with separation of concerns. This could all be WCF, you know? Absolutely, and that's that's part of why I'm I'm falling naturally into this, even though I'm you know my uh, web chops are a little rusty. Is right. that I can fall right into this 
other than just like refamiliarizing myself with JavaScript, especially its modern nuances of usage. Yeah. Um, you know, I fall right into this and go, this is exactly the same stuff I'm doing with a well-structured WPF or Silverlight app today yeah. in terms of the abstractions, the way I hook them up, the way I do data binding through Knockout is very much like Silverlight. Mm-hmm. That's the, It's amazing, really, when you think about what's going on there. But yeah, so interesting that in some ways, the pa- your pattern skills were more valuable than your language skills in taking this on. Absolutely, yeah. It's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. And, and in relation to SPAs in general, another you know sort of pattern-based thing that's, that's helping out is uh, my PRISM background, the, the idea of composite UI applications that you know, dates back to the, uh, the less popular composite UI application block in Windows Forms. All those patterns of composition and dynamically switching out views and stuff is kind of the same exact thing you think about in terms of how you would structure an SPA. Note to the transcriptionist, he said, my prism background, not my prison background. (laughs) P-R-I-S-M. No, Brian Noyes did not spend time in prison. Unless you consider the RIA of a F-14 prison. (laughs) Almost a pilot, but not quite. I knew the transcription is be shaking her head on that one. <laughs> the heck? Yeah, back in Joliet. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't even think of that. But <laughs> yeah, my wife has sort of trained me to 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 hear things a little more carefully. You know, when I'm listening. So. I, and I don't want to necessarily spend a lot of time on Prism, but. Where are we at with that? It's still out there and very much relevant. They actually just put out an update in February. Mm-hmm. Um, just to bring it up to date with Silverlight 5, there are a few subtle breaking changes for some scenarios with Silverlight 5 that they updated it. And they have every intention of doing another update when .NET 4 or 5 comes out just to make sure it's compatible. Um, and they are discussing, not, not settled uh, yet as far as I know, but discussing doing a version compatible with WinRT because all the same patterns certainly apply there. Right. And but and the interesting thing is, of course, this is the pattern model that we're basically describing in a single-page application anyway. Yep. It's yeah. just a different set of libraries and a different execution context. Right. The tools are different. The, the environment is different, but the pattern is the same. Yep. And that's, that's part of what I like about it is, you know, I suppose someone coming in from a more t- traditional, purely web-based background might not have exposure to those same patterns. And in fact, I've heard some, you know, negative comments uh, about libraries like Knockout or, or uh, you mentioned Backbone as a similar library out yeah. there. For, they're more MVC focused instead of MVVM, but you know that's just nuances between what a controller or a view model is. And, uh, you know, some of those negative comments are, are geared along the lines of, what do we need all this fancy abstraction for? You know, it's just the client side. It's not that complicated kind mm-hmm. of thing. But, you know, you get into a single page app where it's not just a page anymore. It's an entire app. Mm, yeah. You, you need some patterns to back you up and keep things from turning into spaghetti. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, makers of Kendo UI. Are you a web or mobile developer who wants to build amazing sites and apps? Looking for the best tool out there that can really improve your development work? We've got the answer for you. Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. In the complete integrated package, you'll find a jQuery-based tool set that includes rich UI widgets, a powerful data source, 
dynamic data visualizations, and blazing fast micro-templates, all backed by industry-leading professional support. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com .net, that's D-O-T-N-E-T, to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 60-day trial with support. Also, Tablet Show number 19 was an interview with Todd Anglin on the Kendo UI. Richard and I talked to him at length about this great tool set. That's at thetabletshow.com and look for show number 19 in the archives. And when you talk to the Telerik guys, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Did you mention whether or not Upshot is, is released or is it in beta or is it commercial or? It is in beta. So it, it came out with the beta of MVC4. Um, they have basically said that they're probably going to release it out of band. Um, it, it may not release with MVC4 itself. So they're going to have a, a separate lifecycle for it, I believe. Um, but, but I'm not sure any of that is nailed down yet. Okay. But, uh, so, yeah. So as I was saying, you know, it's upshot itself is more focused on getting the data into the app and, you know, specifically it can target specific kinds of services. It's part of what got me interested in it is I did a lot of work with uh, WCF RIA services in the Silverlight space and did a series of articles and a lot of conference talks and stuff on RIA services. And part of how Upshot evolved is it had some previous incarnations people might have run across where it was originally called, I think it was WCF slash RIA or something like that out on CodePlex. Right. Um, or no, WCF jQuery was what they first called it. Mm-hmm. And then at the build conference, they had switched names and it was being called RIA slash JS. And the, the primary focus at that point was basically extending the reach of WCF RIA services, which are primarily consumed by Silverlight, and making it so you could easily consume those from an HTML app. And that part is still definitely inside of Upshot and, and works very well today. Um, but what they kind of evolved into is this whole SPA arena, and and also with the new ASP.NET Web API, there's sort of a new flavor of data service called a data controller that you can use, and there's built-in templates for that out of the box, and it looks very much like a RIA domain service in terms of its structure, but basically Upshot can consume either one of those, either a, a Web API-based data controller or a WCF RIA services domain service. And it this approach makes our web server much more like a, just a services platform. You just are calling to various uh, web services to say, give me this chunk of data. And everything really is rendered on the client. Yeah, exactly. Again, very much like you know a smart client app at that point where the UI gets delivered through some URL. Yeah. And, you know, kind of comes along with all its HTML and CSS and JavaScript libraries. But then... From then on, it's just purely a service-based interaction with the back end. Right. Yeah, you've got to sort of... It, yeah, the combination of click once and web services is the same thing on the traditional client side. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I, I really just getting that fat, these parallels so tightly. And I, I don't want to walk away from this comparison of MVVM to MVC because it seems like MVVM dominates the sort of smart client space. As a as an app design pattern, where MVC is, you know, what the web is using now in the modern way of building pages. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting because when I was working with the Prism team at Prism, yep, got it, <laughs> Juliet. <laughs> when I was working with the Prism team at Microsoft, you know, we had a lot of debates about 
uh, view model and and specifically is it even technically a design pattern mm-hmm. um, and, and there were strong arguments that no you know really the underlying design pattern is presentation model yeah uh, one that's written up by Martin Fowler and that MVVM is sort of just a implementation pattern or incarnation of that that presentation model pattern and really, when you talk about MVVM, it's always been, you know, first off, it was sort of invented by the Blend team, by uh, John Gossman and, and Dan Crowder, I think, were the, the main authors back in maybe 2005 timeframe that they first coined the term on their blogs. Um, and it, you know, slowly evolved and, and really started to take off in the 2008 to 2010 timeframe as people started actually using XAML. But when you really look at it, it's always couched very heavily in terms that are dependent on XAML data binding mechanisms. And those same mechanisms really didn't exist anywhere else. You know, even Windows Forms had a rich data binding mechanism in 2.0, but you can't really do MVVM the way you do in Silverlight and WPF in Windows Forms because there are certain aspects that the, the data binding doesn't support in terms of loose coupling. So what really facilitates this in the, uh, in the HTML space is knockout it has sort of mimicked the data binding mechanisms of Silverlight, at least from my perspective. Um, I'm not sure what you know was in Steve Sanderson's mind when he first put started putting it together, but mm-hmm. I know he's he's done a lot of Silverlight as well. And you can draw you know very natural parallels there between the two. In fact, there was a great article uh, just came out a few days ago, and maybe we can add a link to the show from. Um, Colin Eberhardt, uh, a Silverlight MVP out on CodePlex, and he does a one-to-one comparison with an app. He builds the same app in Silverlight and with Knockout and draws comparisons about the two and you know where they're very much the same and the places where there's slight differences because of the underlying environment. Yeah, and so you know, MVVM is very tied into having a, a specific form of data binding mechanism. And so I think you know, if you were to go with, uh, with Backbone, for example, they have a similar concept to data binding and, and, and the separation of concerns pattern-based aspect, but it maybe doesn't look just like Silverlight and, and WPF data binding, so it may not fit as perfectly with the MVVM concept. So, Brian, what's the, what's the relationship between RIA services and, uh, and an ASP.NET uh, and, and, a, and a single-page application? How does RIA services fit into this equation? Good question. Um, you know, one aspect is what I mentioned is that Upshot one of the one of the core feature sets in Upshot is the ability to just kind of point to an existing WCF RIA service backend and consume its service its services in a way that's very similar to the way Silverlight does. So I've always said that the the real benefits of RIA services in are all on the client side in Silverlight. Um, you get easy calls to the service to retrieve the data. It caches the data. It does change tracking whenever you're modifying that data. It gives you validation support. It gives you security support. And that all kind of comes in on the cl- client side. So it's not the back end that's really beneficial about doing RIA services. It's the rich client side framework support that makes it easy to you know pull down and interact with that data. And so that's... Um, kind of been missing for other platforms as far as RIA services is concerned. They did include an ability with RIA services uh, since the early days to expose additional endpoints. The the default endpoint with RIA services is actually a HTTP-based but binary encoded, kind of proprietary uh-huh. binary formatting like WCF uses. 
um, for efficiency, but that means other platforms aren't going to be able to consume that at all. Um, so they had the ability to expose both a, a basic HTTP uh, SOAP endpoint that other platforms could consume, including other .NET platforms like WPF or ASP.NET and so on, um, and also a REST uh, JSON-based endpoint. But the problem was without the client-side support, it was like, nah, why would I want to consume that service instead of just exposing my own that I'm in full control over? Right. But what Upshot kind of gives you is the same client-side framework-y type support for consuming that, getting the change tracking, getting the validation and all that stuff sort of for free out of the library instead of having to write all that consumption yourself. So, yeah. like I said, I, I think of it as just extending the reach of RIA services. If I were to sit down and build a brand new app from scratch, totally targeting HTML uh, clients, would I do RIA services? No, probably not. I'd do yeah. one of these new web API-based data controllers that it can also consume. Um, and, and the other part is the app has to be very focused on kind of CRUD-oriented data interactions, a lot of pulling down the data, editing that data, validating that data, pushing it back to the back end. That's what RIA services is all about, and that's really what these data controllers and, and Upshot is all about. So if you're used to programming a RIA domain service, what is it going to be easy for you to use one of these uh, ASP.NET Web API data controllers? Yeah, it is, because the patterns are very much the same. The, the domain services and RIA services have, you know, basically four methods per data collection, insert, update, delete, create type of stuff, or got it all backwards there, but you get it. Yeah, crud. yeah, yeah, the crud stuff. <laughs> the crud, stuff. those four crud thingies. Um, right. And data controllers, exact same thing. So the base class, it, it makes it very much like domain services. If you're working with any framework, your job is really simple. You just point to your entity model or your DB context that does work with the code first stuff very nicely. And uh, and it has base class methods for the four CRUD operations. So you just delegate to your base class methods. And if you want to put any intervening logic, authorization logic, validation logic, you just kind of insert that in the method. And it's a very straightforward approach. Um, but, it's, but it's important to emphasize, you know, this is not a general purpose, any kind of service needs you would do through a data controller thing. This is just about your CRUD operations. Right. If you've got things that kick off a workflow and control devices on the back end and, you know, submit your taxes or whatever, the, you know, those are kind of, you would put those off to the side in just a web API based service. Well, Richard, guess what time it is? Must be that happy time again. It's the happiest time of the show. <laughs> <laughs> It's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection. It's a $2,000 monetary value, but a software value monetarily, if that makes any sense, of $7,000 worth of software from Telerik. It's all their stuff. Today's winner is Richard Garside from the UK. Richard, golf clap for you. Well done, sir. Well done. So, Richard, if you're listening, uh, I hope you didn't skip over this middle section. <laughs> One guy admits to skipping. Now you think they all are? I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, this is the great .NET Rocks prize giveaway. And if you go on the .NET Rocks website on the right-hand side, you'll see Get Free Stuff. Click on that link, answer a few questions, and you'll be part of the pool of folks who win the free stuff that we get given to us, like these Telerik suites, other control suites, sometimes tickets to shows, and at the end of the year, $5,000 worth of hand-picked goodies from myself and my good buddy Carl. That's right. Me and my buddy, the Toy Boy, we're picking five grand worth of technology just in time for the holidays. Nice. So... um. 
So, Brian, if you're not used to programming in this single model uh, architecture, what what are the main kinds of things that we're going to have to be paying attention to, new habits that we're going to have to learn? Well, it's definitely something that um, I think you have to do some thought and some design up front. It's not the uh, pure extreme programming, sit down and start writing some code and see how it evolves kind of thing. You know, you got to at least sort of draw out some screen mockups and figure out what the navigation through your app's going to look like and try to decide how you're de- going to decompose those child views, if you will, um, yeah. into their own little chunks of HTML, m- mostly through jQuery templates would be the way to, to tie them together and present them. Um, and even some code structuring and thinking about, you know, do I want one big giant chunk of HTML with all these templates in it? Do I want to start breaking that down into smaller pieces and, and you know, JavaScript libraries that I pull together just to delay the loading of some or, you know, not have one big download at the beginning of the app? So there's definitely some upfront design to be done. And uh, that may be a little different, especially for, you know, traditional web app developers. Yeah, it actually seems like it's quite a ways away from your typical web app approach, especially if you're coming from the web forms view of send it up, bring it back, send it up, bring it back. Is there a lot of showing and hiding of things? In in other words, uh, things that are there in the model on the back that we're just turning visibility on and off? Or is it um, more like we take our, our components, uh, if you could think of the web forms analogy, like a web control and we load them in dynamically into our containers and that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a couple different techniques for doing it and and uh you know, I won't claim to be the utmost expert on all that stuff yet, but uh there's there's both the physical mechanism of making something different show up in the in the browser. Um, and that can largely be done by having these jQuery templates and just changing the contents of a div. So it's very much like working with a, a content placeholder in a master page, you know, where you're just changing out the contents of a div, but doing it client side through JavaScript. Um, but there's also, you know, the, the key consideration to always think about is what's the experience from a browser navigation perspective, specifically the address bar. And, you know, do do you want them to be able to specifically navigate to a given view? Um, and a lot of that comes in through hashtags, uh, but there's some new HTML5 mechanisms there. Um, and that's where libraries like the History.js uh, library has some support where if you're down-level browser and you don't have those HTML5 features available, they'll use ha- hashtags in the URL, the, you know, the number symbol and stuff following it to identify what sort of, you know, sub address you're on that the uh, the underlying JavaScript can use to decide what to present. But the important part of that is it factors into your forward and back navigation as far as the browser is concerned. Um, and that can also factor into uh, search engine optimization, which is also kind of an interesting aspect of this. Is Yeah, I would think that SPAs are basically SEO resistant. They Google definitely have are. a hope on this page. They definitely are. Yeah. So they're, you know, generally not going to be able to see any of those subviews unless you actually have, because when the spiders go out in the, in the bots and stuff and go generate the search indexes, yeah. you know, they kind of look like a down level browser. They're identifiable, at least through the user agent. And so you, it, it comes back to what you were discussing earlier in the show is that you're back into this arena where you got to maintain two versions of your site almost. Yeah, yeah, you got to got to have the Node.js, no JavaScript enabled, you know, completely down level browser support if you want that, but you almost have to have that anyway if you want to be search engine optimized. 
Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the new feature list for Active Report 6. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. It strikes me that this model, like OWA, this is an internal app technique. I don't think that I do publicly facing apps like this. Yeah, it's a very good point. Is is it is more for something you would have thought of as a desktop kind of application, where you would have no expectation of being able to drill down to the you know nth level down sub 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 view yeah. through an address. Um, you just wouldn't expect a search engine to get there. If if that's what you're trying to do, then traditional pages with traditional addresses may be more maybe a better solution. Yeah, and it, and plus. It is going to be fairly specific to the browser, to the library set, to behavior. Like, this is the kind of thing that just lends itself to this is one of our internal app approaches, and here's what you get. And it, it's got no deployment. It updates very painlessly. I mean, all the things you like about the web, but still feels rather, you know, uh, real app-like without that pain. What about the mobile story? Does this work well on a smartphone? Yeah, I was just about to to go there, not to uh, you know steal themes from your other show, which is a great show as well. But uh, that that's actually, I would in my mind, where it fits best because really, it, well, especially yeah. if you're talking about the hybrid apps, you know, the HTML5 based installed apps with things right. like PhoneGap, you know, it fits perfectly into that story because you're inherently talking about a single page application. There's you know a root experience for the user, and you just happen to be choosing. HTML5 and JavaScript is a way to render things out. Well, it makes sense to me because, you know, on a on a tablet, you don't want pages flashing in and out and moving around. Uh, it looks more like an app if it's a dynamically loading and changing page. Exactly. And your, and your SEO concerns are not, you know, really going to be there. They're going to yeah, be on right. your main public-facing websites. That's right. But the other thing is, especially when you're talking about MVC, is the whole aspect of routing and... and different views and things like that's just not working like this no no i mean the the routing would get you to the single page app and right. then the client side takes over from there yeah and then although i could see you loading different css for a different pane well and the other thing to take into consideration is you know just because you take a single page application approach doesn't necessarily mean you're your logical application has to all be on a single page. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you, know, yeah. you might have certain places that you choose to actually physically navigate to a different SPA from a structuring perspective, but to the end user, it's all got the same Chrome and, and color schemes and branding and stuff. So it feels right. like a single site. So, you know, if you take the site concept from a web page, you could have a single site composed of multiple SPAs for different logical functional groupings. And, and that actually, you know, parallel parallels back into the way we structure things in a prism app. A prism app, you break down into these functional modules. They all live within a common shell, but you know, when a given module is putting its functionality into the shell, it may change out the overall top-level experience, uh, at least slightly. Yeah, and I wonder if that doesn't just help for 
team development too, just creating some sense of isolation so different groups could work on different pieces of an app. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, just the decomposition there. You can do that to a certain degree. Like I said before, if you put some upfront thought into the way you're going to break things down into separate files and, and have different people working on different files, but uh, you know, ultimately they all got to test together in the same single page app. And if there's changes being made to that root application, then you can get some thrashing. Yeah. So is, is there, I mean, obviously there's more than one approach to this, but in the Microsoft stack, are there a sort of a preferred set of tools? Well, the you know basically what you get out of the box with the MVC four SPA template at the current time is uh, you know obviously it's an MVC four site as far as the way it's going to render out the page. Yeah. Um, the the page structure on the server side is broken down following standard MVC uh, structuring where they've got a an index page and then they break down head you know kind of the surrounding content similar to a master page. Um, so that part is what renders out your your single page app. But from there, it's all about the client side. And so it's really a composition of uh, client side libraries that they have there by default, which would mainly be the um, uh, upshot for the data access portion I talked about and calling the services and caching the data right. and making it accessible to your views, uh, as well as one of the other things upshot does is it doesn't just pull down data. Um, it expects to get some metadata back about the data. Mm-hmm. So there's actually uh, JSON that comes down along with the data to describe it, basically give you logical type names and namespaces for the types uh, and also some validation indications to show you things like required fields and things like that. So Upshot covers that aspect. Uh, Knockout is there to cover the the data binding aspects if you choose to do so um, and and structure things in an MVVM kind of way. Uh, they've got nav.js in there as, to help with some of this uh, kind of logical URL navigation within the view. Um, and that's pretty much it right. as far as the default set of libraries that Microsoft gives you. And it, and it's fascinating to me to hear you basically describe a Microsoft stack, including a library. They basically have nothing to do with, with Knockout.js. Well, they do and they don't. Keep in mind, Knockout was mostly written by Steve Sanderson, who is part of the MVC team and specifically working on the Upshot team right now. Right, right. Mm. So, they, so while yeah, it is an external library, yeah, it is, it is coming from Microsoft it. people. Yeah, exactly. No, but it is, I mean, the fact that the whole stack now, uh, or, or, you know, at least the ASP.NET portion of it is open source itself out on Git, you know, with or using Git over CodePlex is kind of, you know, showing you they're moving in that direction. So I know this might be an obvious question, but what can, let's go over the types of applications that would not lend themselves to uh, an SPA, the types of web applications out there that you would would or wouldn't. Well, um, you know, one that jumps to mind that we were talking about before is if I was going to do an online shopping, you know, retail store kind of thing, uh, the the SEO aspects are going to dominate there. And, and you want people to have these URLs that they can bookmark and, and go back to. And Right. So anything so, that needs to be searchable in a search engine. Right? Yeah, it's not that you can't be searchable, but you're going to have to do a lot more work to make it searchable. Well, your your front page should be searchable. And from there, you could jump into an SPA. Is that is that an idea? Yeah, I think of it as more, uh, it's harder for me to think in terms of what I would exclude. It, it's more thinking in terms of what kinds of app, applications lend themselves to an SPA. Okay. And and for those, I think more of like a rich client, the, the kinds of things where you would want to be a little more heads down as a user. Mm. It's not something you're going to have a passing visit 
on the application. It's more something you're going to dive in there and spend some time on. Something more interactive, something that's dynamically changing a lot. Yeah, exactly. You know, your your sort of canonical, uh, you know, time card, expense reporting, you know, data entry type applications up to a point. There's still the there's still the argument of would I put a heavy heads down data entry app as a web app in the first place versus right. a, a native app. But, you know, that's kind of a separate argument. But those kinds of applications tending in that direction are the things where, you know, I see a user sitting down and spending some time in that app. Well, it's, you know, what comes to mind, Richard, is the uh, Grape City's awesome um, analytics tool. You know, that kind of thing where it, it is a little app built in. I mean, if there was a yeah. web version of that, I could see that being a single-page application. Because really, it the, the whole UI is about bringing things into a matrix from the top and the left and then, you know, manipulating them and tweaking values and seeing them update in real time. Yeah. Well, and it sort of begs the question, I wonder if we can build the back end in a way that uh, it is uh, compatible with both our smart client and our web client. It definitely could, uh, especially, you know, if you're using RIA services, if your smart client is Silverlight, absolutely. And if you're using the data controllers, the the, the shape of those services, if you will, at a wire level is just a standard uh, HTTP service web API kind of thing. That's the only thing that's different about it is this metadata. I mentioned that, you know, it just looks like kind of simple CRUD calls over uh, REST-like services, um, but, uh, and then it has this extra part of the payload that's metadata about the types it's sending you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, any, well, any platform could certainly consume that. It's all um, HTTP in the end. Well, that, yeah, that whole discussion brings, brings up another question, which is if you've got this single page application doing everything that you can do in a Silverlight app, and that is really the key here is can it, if it can, why do we need to have a Silverlight app? Oh, we're going to go there. Sure. No, sure. But, you know, but the question really is not why do we need it. The question really is what's deficient? I mean, what can you do in Silverlight that you can't do in an SPA? That is the question. That is an excellent question. And Colin's article that I mentioned, you know, tries to address that. He, Like I said, he's I, I'm a Silverlight MVP. He is as well. So I have to admit that I'm coming at it from, a, you know, somewhat of a biased angle. Right. But, um. You know, the argument's been made a lot that it's all about productivity, that you can be more productive in Silverlight uh, than you can be without HTML and JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more time I'm spending with this, and, and Colin's article kind of points this out too, there's an awful lot of things you do in Silverlight that with the right tooling, yes, it's very productive. For example, he, he uh, mentions doing visual states to kind of hide and show things and, and have dynamic uh, changes to the UI. And if you're using Blend, then that is just kind of draggy, droppy, point, click, 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 and you're done, and you've got these visual states to find. But if you look at a raw code level, visual states are just an appalling amount of, of XAML, and you would never, ever use visual states if you had to write it by hand. Um, so you, you really have to break it down to, you know, is the expectation that you're writing this code by hand or are you using tooling? And so with the tooling, yes, yeah, Silverlight still, to those with, you know, an equal base of experience, generally would say Silverlight can be more productive. And but there are certain capabilities in Silverlight that are, you know, smart client capabilities, like the video stream capabilities with DRM, just, you know, far more refined controls around that kind of graphical behavior. 
Exactly. They're, they're specific, but they're real. Yeah, exactly. You've got a much richer platform sitting underneath you. You know, you're you're very much more with the HTML JavaScript client. You're very much more out in a you know very refined sandbox. And certainly, there's all kinds of crazy JavaScript libraries out there for you know making things easier for given scenarios. Mm-hmm. But it's still totally based on the fact that your your life exists inside the the boundaries of the browser. Yeah. Whereas Silverlight, it's more, you know, you're sitting on top of a desktop platform and and yes, you are in a sandbox and WinRT holds the same, you know, same kind of constraints that yes, you are in a sandbox so that you can't harm that platform, but to the extent possible, they have fully exposed that platform to you to leverage. And that's just not true in a JavaScript app. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it definitely begs some some more research to be done, uh, and it's just a simple analysis, I think. You know, in terms of um, you know what what what's available to us, what can't we do? Like, for example, accessing the local file system, which you can do in Silverlight. Can you do that in a in a uh, SPA? Well, you know, that gets down to one of those design things because I, I used to run into this all the time with Click Once. Um, you guys know I was very focused on in the day. Sure. Um, and I would run into frequently customers would be considering click once and they would say, but we absolutely need to deploy our application to this one magic directory on the C drive. And with click once, it was like, okay, game over. Can't use this technology. Right. But it's like, you really got to poke at them and go, why do you think you need to do that? Why is it insufficient to put it where ClickOnce wants you to put it, isolated under the user's profile and so on. And so HTML and JavaScript have the same thing, at least if you say HTML5 and you sort of caveat that with what HTML5 will eventually become uh, in that there's, you know, part of the HTML5 spec is offline storage, very much like isolated storage in .NET. And actually part of the upshot story, this is not in the current bits, uh, but Steve Sanderson demoed this at uh, Tech Days in, in the Netherlands, I believe it was. And it's certainly on their roadmap is not only to be able to cache the data client side, but also to be able to persist it through HTML5 storage so that you could have an offline cache, fire the app, app up again, potentially in a fully offline mode and still be fully interactive with the app. Um, so yes, you can access the file system in in a sense, to the extent that your app needs to store data, you know, but can you go find data that, that some other app stored somewhere on the system? Absolutely not. Hmm. But then again, you know, the, you, you can use standard HTML and JavaScript tools to like browse for a file. Like if you're going to upload a file, for example. Yeah, true. Yeah. As long as it's, you know, user, cons- most of those things are constrained by user consent in the sense that if it's coming through a file dialogue that the user is in the loop and picking it, so it must be okay. But you can't programmatically go do things without their knowledge. Right. And, you know, in reality is, should you really be doing that? <laughs> you know, are there situations no. <laughs> you can think of where that would happen? No, you shouldn't. I mean, that's why Silverlight already constrains this. You have the same same kinds of constraints unless you go, you know, fully elevated trust trust in Silverlight. And WinRT has the same constraints and has no intents of even having an override for it at the current time. So right. the user's got to be in the loop and you know picking it if it's going to be somewhere other than the the application's limited view of the world. What about performance? I mean, does the particular browser you use really critical to making this work well? 
I think as long as you're in, you know, the modern variants of the primary four-ish browsers, you're going to be fine. Yeah. Um, but do you, do you get some browser compatibility issues? Like, does it behave differently in Chrome versus IE9 versus, you know, Safari? Not with the libraries I've been talking about, because they're all kind of using the same. They're either using jQuery themselves or they're using the same tricks that jQuery used to sort of denormalize all the browsers and and kind of encapsulate whatever tricks and patterns are required to be compatible across IE, Chrome, you know, Safari, and mm-hmm. uh, and um, to a certain extent Opera. But that one seems to be off to the side a little more. Um, so, uh, but it, I mean, and it really, you know, we haven't talked about HTML5 at all because nothing you've t- described here is really HTML5y. Well, there is, like I said, there is some dependence, at least at the higher level SBA level, in terms of how you navigate to those subviews, and mm-hmm. if you're if you're involving the address bar, basically. Um, like I said, the the backwards compatible way is to use the the hashtag, um, you know, with some some URI following it to identify the subviews, uh, so that it becomes part of the browser history. Um, but there's an HTML5 way with a, a uh, method called push state that allows you to kind of push and pop state into the navigation stack uh, that doesn't require these hashtags. So that's that's one you know variant that is HTML5 dependent. Nice. And I believe most of those libraries just kind of use the, a similar modernizer kind of approach to figure out what the capability is, not what the specific browser is. Well, Brian, it seems like you're uh you know up to your neck in this technology it's very cool and uh please come back and tell us more about it when uh when it uh when it as it as it matures yeah there's definitely still more to more to come with it that uh you know they've talked about the offline storage and it's still a little unclear how much they're going to you know stick their neck if you will not in a negative sense but uh into the UI structuring part of it the actual truly single page application part as opposed to just being a data layer effectively right Awesome. All right. Well, that's the show. I think so. Thanks, Brian. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.